From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. So we have about you know, a four-acre parcel of land here that's subdivided into a whole bunch of micro plots, basically, where we can isolate you know, the black strawberry tomato or the Chinese wallflower or a gourd or whatever it happens to be, and we can make sure that those seeds stay pure. Purity is one of the biggest things that we, that we do here. We do a lot of purity trials, so we maintain that seed that we're selling somebody. We want to make sure that that seed is 100% true to type. This week on the show, we visit Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company to learn the particulars of growing for seed. And Violet Barron talks with the owners of Lost Farm Meal Service about growing a business during a pandemic. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Amarillo, Black Nebula, Chantenay Redcore, Gniff, Uzbek Golden, St. Valerie, Coral, Lunar White, Littlefinger, Manpukuji, Oxheart, and Purple Dragon. That's just a sampling of the carrot varieties listed in the Baker Creek seed catalog. If it's beans you're looking for, they have your Blue Lake Bush, Contender, a.k.a. Buff Valentine, Dragon Tongue Bush, Cherokee Trail of Tears, Good Mother Stallard, Greasy Grits, and Black Turtle, to name a few. They've also got varieties of bitter melon, huckleberry, cabbages, cowpea, rutabaga, quinoa, rosemary, broccoli, Swiss chard, and every type of flower under the sun. If you have a chance to visit Baker Creek in Mansfield, Missouri, flowers might be the first thing you notice. What we do here at Baker Creek is we do three things. We make seeds, we do trials, and we grow beauty. When I visited in mid-April, it was just past their annual tulip festival, but the tulips themselves remain spectacular. Planting flowers en masse in an organized fashion, bed upon bed of vibrant blooms spanning a giant open courtyard with tidy stone paths. It has a certain kind of effect. Jaw-dropping beauty is one way to describe it. Baker Creek is a seed company founded by Jer Gettle in 1998. They specialize in rare seeds and heirloom varieties. On their website, they state, quote, We believe farmers, gardeners, and communities have the right to save their own seeds and, in so doing, preserve seed diversity and food security in an age of corporate agriculture and patented, hybridized, or genetically modified seeds. All of the seeds they sell can be saved, shared, and traded. Baker Creek is world-renowned for their specialty seeds. I had the chance to visit their headquarters in southern Missouri. The farm is a magical wonderland for folks who love to grow things, food or flowers. And they play up the historical side of things with a bit of a pioneer village vibe. After browsing the expansive display of seed packets in their country store, I met up with farm manager Jordan Chell. My name is Jordan. I work here at Baker Creek Seeds. I'm on the farming operations here. I help manage the farm here at Baker Creek Mansfield. I'm a farmer by trade. I grew up farming 200 acres of bell peppers in California, Ventura County. As a kid, you know, I just worked on the farm and I actually hated farming growing up. I 
told my dad, you know, I was never going to be a farmer, and it was just like the last thing on earth I wanted to do. But that changed. He found his way back into farming, first with a bird management business on berry farms on the West Coast, and then he got involved with research and development at a test plot with Driscoll's strawberries. There he learned skills in substrate and hydroponic growing and breeding. He then moved on to a company that was growing organic living butter lettuce. Living butter lettuce is a head of lettuce that you grow, but you harvest it, and it's hydroponic, so it's clean. So when you pull the lettuce out of the raft, the float that it's growing in, you're selling the lettuce attached to the roots. So it's, it lasts a little longer. It's, yeah. it's really alive when the person purchases it. Yeah, we, I mean, shelf life trials, you know, that thing can sit in your fridge for, you know, almost five weeks and, and still be really edible. So I learned a lot about organic, hydroponic, bacterial, and fungi relations there. And that really got me coming out of, like, a conventional farming background with, like, conventional fertilizers, conventional pesticides, and go in just the straight conventional route, which, you know, you can grow plants that way quite well, to this more like regenerative, sustainable living ecosystem that we helped to build and develop for this Butterhead Lettuce Program. And that got me into a mental state of like, okay, there's really something going on here with the relationship of the sun and the energy and the plants and the pests. And, and so I ended up making another jump to working on a cannabis farm in California, an eight acre greenhouse that I helped set up and develop and, inst- and institute a lot of those organic regenerative practices there. And then due to whole, the whole California cannabis market bottoming out and mega corporations coming in and battling, we ended up folding. Around this time is when Jordan moved to Missouri and took the job at Baker Creek. Baker Creek is a seed company. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it, how it's different when you're growing something for seed versus when you're growing it for the fruit or for the leaf or for the root? On the seed aspect of it, we do things that are called seed stock increases or grow outs. So if we like a variety and we need seed on it, we'll isolate it and we'll make sure it stays pure. And then we'll harvest those seeds, process them through our processing department and end up with, you know, a batch of seeds on our hands that we can then take to another grower that we partner with and say, okay, here's a batch of seeds. We want you to grow this out so we can have a larger volume for us to sell. And then they have to meet our standards and work with our departments here to meet certain requirements for producing those seeds. And then some of those seeds that we do save and grow, we'll do the grow outs here ourselves as well. So we have about, you know, a four acre parcel of land here that's subdivided into a whole bunch of micro plots basically where we can isolate you know the black strawberry tomato or the Chinese wallflower or you know a gourd or whatever it happens to be and we can make sure that those seeds stay pure. Purity is one of the biggest things that we that we do here. We do a lot of purity trials so we maintain you know that seed that we're selling somebody we want to make sure that that seed is 100% true to type. So then we'll trial it here and verify that it is. What are some of the techniques you use for isolating? I mean, maybe it's yeah. different for different species, but... Yeah, definitely different for different species. So things are pollinated by wind, pollinated by insects, mainly are the, are the two main modes of pollination. So you have certain, depending upon 
you know, the size of the pollen grain and how it moves, you have different isolation distances as far as actual space, wind buffers, and then like corn, for example, is like a mile. Tomatoes are tw- technically 25 feet. We do 50 feet here. And then we do a lot of greenhouse growing here and that we've definitely moved towards in the last couple of years is building a lot of greenhouses to, so we can do things that would require a lot of space outside. Now they're in an enclosed environment, locked down, so we can do several different, different things of the same, like corns or gourds or cucumbers or whatever, melons, we can do them all right next to each other. So within the greenhouse, you're able to set up barriers and enclosures to to protect them from cross-pollinating. That's correct. And a lot of what we do here, too, is this year we started a breeding program. And so we've been doing a lot of, like, micro-isolation events with putting up insect netting, making a frame over the plants that we want to isolate, and then putting insect netting, and then we release bottle flies to do the pollination work for us so we can move the pollen around so we don't have to sit there and hand pollinate these little tiny, a lot of these flowers are quite small. Well, I was just gonna ask about that. Do you, have you done some hand pollination and what yeah. is that like? So our, our head breeder here, his name is Weston. He came on this past year to help start this breeding program. And yeah, he's been going around doing hand pollination events like all over the farm and tagging things. We're doing a lot of work, a lot of and really cool new work on pansies. So we're going to be offering in the next couple of years, you know, a whole line of like Baker Creek pansy development. So as an example. So what does that look like? Is it just like sort of a Q-tip type thing where you're just kind of moving from one flower? To- yeah. So the flower has male pollen and a female receptor. So, you know, I can get, we can get in depth to this or we can keep it kind of high level and simple, but you take the male pollen and you put it on that female receptor. And if you're crossing two flowers, you'll strip one of them of all of its male parts. So there's not a chance of that male part getting onto that flower. So you can then take another flower from another, you know, another plant of the same species and bring it in and make that cross to mix up genetics, basically. And then that stays tagged. So, you know, okay, this flower has been crossed. You save the fruit, extract the seeds, and you're off to the races with another, another line of watermelons for example we're doing a watermelon project we're going into the f3s and f4s this year on a little tiny really good sweet high bricks icebox watermelon from japan that we've been working on and the the interesting thing about it is the rind is just like paper thin it is incredible you could practically eat the whole melon it's out of this world and the seeds are like super small can't even tell you're eating seeds so i think it'll be pretty fun and so what are you trying to do with that? You're trying to cross it with something else or you're just trying to successfully grow it yourself or what is Yeah, that's a good question. So that kind of segues into the, another thing we do here is, for example, this, this melon we're working on, it's actually a dehybridization event. So we're taking, I guess maybe we should back up and say this, that a lot of seeds on the market people will get confused on like what's an heirloom what's an open pollinated what's a land race what's a hybrid like there's all yeah. these terms out that float around so a hybrid is what a lot of seed companies sell and what it is it's two homozygous so that means just completely stabilized genetics so let's just talk you know let's just talk uh, watermelons for example because like, we're working on a watermelon project you have two watermelons that if you saved the seeds from them they would be 
if you kept them isolated, they would just continually to be pure. They would be the same seed every time. You'd get the same melons relatively. They're, they're consistent. They're homozygous. So an F1 hybrid is when you take two of those homozygous genetics and you cross them. And you get a lot of seeds that are almost identical, vigorous, and just amazing. But they're hybrids. So then if you take that, that hybrid seed and save it and replant it, you're going to get the genetic expression of all those genes that were hidden inside of there. They mix up again. So what we're doing with this watermelon is we're dehybridizing it. So we're taking two homozygous plants and we're taking that F1, right? And then we're planting out the F1 to stabilize and stabilize and bring it back to make it homozygous and we're selfing and selfing and selfing to get it to be pure again. And then that will create a new quote unquote heirloom genetic. Heirloom genetic or an heirloom varietal there's a lot of different terminology that floats around. My best understanding of it is a variety that's been around and is relatively pure for the last 50 years or longer. It's stabilized and it's like a known genetic. There's a lot of good genetics out there that could classify as heirlooms, but they're just not on the market. I'm jumping in here to admit that I got a bit confused here about the difference between heirlooms, open pollinated, and hybrids. I found good explanations for the differences on the Baker Creek website, which I link to in the show notes at eartheats.org. The main thing to keep in mind is that hybrid seeds cannot be saved and planted the next year. I mean, you can do that, but you can't be certain that the fruit will be the same that second year. With heirlooms, you can save seed year after year, trade with your neighbors, and pass them down over generations. The seeds are stable. Those are the only kinds of seeds that Baker Creek sells. However, that doesn't mean that they don't do any breeding at all. They sell what's called open-pollinated varieties, which means the seeds were bred naturally by wind, insects, animals, or by human hands in a minimally invasive way, which can include passing pollen between varieties using a paintbrush or a feather. Many heirloom varieties were created with this type of crossing, but they need to be stabilized over generations, which is what Jordan was describing with the isolating and the selfing. The last aspect to this terminology is what they call like a land race, and that is a genetic variety that's been out in the wild, undisturbed with its genetic pool, so you could have tomatoes, for example, in the Andes, and they're just floating around out there on some hillside, and there's just this pool of genetics that's been isolated. And so that's a land race genetic. Very, very low yielding, but they have the genetic material inside of them to make, like, exquisite plants. Why, why would those be exquisite plants? Is it just the kind of strength of not being... I don't know. Why would you call them exquisite plants? I think it has to do with the fact that when you make these heirlooms and you're like selfing and selfing and selfing and you're creating this completely inbred plant, you lose a lot of you lose a lot of its strength. You gain a lot of good things, but you lose a lot of the plant's actual like vigor and strength. And so these land races, their genetic pools are just so diverse and there's stability in having a large variation of genetic material in your DNA. 
and it ex- and because they're always crossing with each other, it's always kind of getting mixed up a little bit. But when you're selfing and selfing and selfing on a lot of these heirlooms, you you get this like a lot of complaints are, oh my heirloom tomatoes they get downy mildew or anthracnose, so they're just kind of sick looking over time. I see. So that's why that's why heirlooms sometimes aren't the best producers, or there's something like you said, they're, it's yes. easy for them to get they disease. Get a bad rap. They get a bad <laughs> rap. But flavor-wise and nutritionally-wise, they they are more nutritious, and they are the, then that's reflective in the flavor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason people prefer them, even though they have these yes. other issues. And the ability to save your own seed. You could do it with a hybrid, but you're gonna have to plant out, you know, 200 pepper plants of that F1 hybrid and select, and then keep going. And seven years later, it'll finally like people don't have time for that. So you talked about isolating and getting, you know, getting seeds made, and you also talked about then you process those seeds. What's involved in processing seeds? Okay, yeah, that's the that's the that's the battle. But growing is relatively easy, and then you know you have this fruit that's on the vine or on the plants, and you've got to number one make sure it's at the maturity level so that the seeds will be ripe. Sometimes we'll harvest and let that fruit sit a little bit to make sure that you know that gets the complete seed ripeness. And then, you know, depending on what type of plant we're saving seeds from, we will, you know, cut the plants into pieces. We run them through like a certain types of shredding machines and separators to kind of extract like the pulp from the seed. A lot of different like washings through screens to get just the seed, right? That's all we're after. And once you have that, then we put them on drying racks and we dry the seed to the right moisture content. And then we will immediately plant that seed and verify its germination rates that okay this is actually going to germinate and grow and then we'll you know and then we'll store the seed from there in our warehouse and so when you say you plant the seed you're just planting like a small amount just to make sure that yeah we'll do like uh we'll do any anywhere between like 36 and 50 to 100 depending on what we're doing seeds to just get a quick germination rate and, you know, and if it looks bad, you know, we'll do a larger lot to verify. If it looks great, okay, then it's, you know, then it's good. Then it goes into the program, and then we do separate purity trials in addition to that to make sure, like, to grow that plant out to its full maturity to verify everything's good and legit. Wow, so it sounds like it's farming and it's science. It is, yeah, yeah. I would say it's the cross between those two is definitely, like, it's definitely an art, like... I've de- I've definitely learned a lot from the people here who have been doing it for quite a while, and it's pretty amazing, saving seed. That's Jordan Chell with Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company in Mansfield, Missouri. We need to take a quick break now, and when we come back, Jordan takes me around the farm to a few of their greenhouses. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats, and we're back with Jordan Chell of Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company. They're headquartered in Mansfield, Missouri, not far from where my brother lives in Springfield. On a family visit, I arranged to talk with Jordan to learn about the particular work of a seed farm. After our interview, Jordan was kind enough to take my brother and I on a short tour through some of the greenhouses on the grounds. There's like over 20 greenhouses here that range between 3,000 to... 5,000 square feet and we've got a farming crew of five to six people on any given day 
So we're just, it's kind of just non-stop. We just go from one to the next, one to the next, and attack them one by one, really. Then off out there in the distance, that is some of our outdoor plots that we're starting to work up this year for our, our seed isolation trials and seed saving events. It's cool that you call it a seed saving event. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that's just how we, I view it. I don't know. We've got Shannon right here. He's, he's our lead tractor, tractor driver. And anything on a tractor that you need done, I mean, he'll handle it. So he's gone the tractor right now tilling and getting ready. We're going to plant a bunch of sweet potatoes out here in this plot for the restaurant, for eating, evaluations, and 22 new heirlooms sweet potato trials that we're putting in this year. And then right now, we're walking through what we call the kitchen garden. This used to be the garden where a lot of the food crops were grown, but it's transitioned to all flowers. So this is where all the flower trials go in, are these raised beds down here. We can look in these two and then walk to that one. Okay. So this is our one of our seed starting houses here. We do everything on heat mats and in either 50 cell trays or six packs. So what we have on this bench, for example, is all the tomatoes and peppers that we're gonna send out to California this year for our expo. So we're growing the starts here and then we're gonna ship the plants to California and then put them in the ground out there. So they're all started and we're just, just a ticking time clock waiting for the, the shipping to uh, take place, but. You see the orange trees here? No. You wanna see them? Sure. So this is our mixed potted culture and seedling overflow house, so. This is kind of like an intermediary staging area where you can get things a little bit bigger. We could, for example, we've got like a bunch of petunias that we started that are in one gallons that are just looking amazing. Peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, all a bunch of different flowers, nasturtiums, coleus, poppies, vincas, gonfrinas. I mean, we could just keep going down the snap list. Dragon. Yeah, snap. I mean, there's just there's everything imaginable in here. And then we have on the back section, we have kind of a little repository of um, some different like ornamental genetics that we're working on, seeing if we want to do something with. Okay. Yeah, let's go to the uh, citrus. Okay, so here's our the citrus house. One of the two citrus houses we have going. <laughs> wow. So yeah, these are, most of these are deco pond Japanese oranges, and they're just, they're amazing. They're like a cross between a tangerine and an orange. We can peel one here. It's, they're mostly done. We've picked a lot of them. Ken, one of the chefs in the restaurant, he's been making a bunch of orange, homemade orange soda, Ooh. which has been, it's about 10 oranges per gallon, and it's just out of this world good. It's so fresh. I think there's a, we'll sneak around. The further up you go, the better they are. We've picked all the ones down low here. Let me see if I can grab one here. We'll see if it's any good. We're kind of on the way out, but. 
and this is really small. I'll show you guys the Deco Pond Orange. It's, it's like actually really, really big. But these trees set a bunch of fruit, and so the energy went into making more oranges than you know a few big oranges. This one's just okay. It's just okay. It's nothing special, yeah. Oh, no, I like it. Wow. And we've got lemons and guavas and avocados and kumquats and just the whole menagerie of subtropical things that, you know, can cut finger limes that can kind of take down to... These orange trees can take down to, you know, comfortably like 30, 32. They can take down to 28 a little bit, so... We supplemental heat these houses in the winter. Yeah, last winter, I mean, these things were just covered in snow. And there's a little bit of heat and orange trees are good to go. Cool. Yeah, you can, if you looked on this tree here, this is how big they're supposed to be. Oh. Just massive. Here's another one here. So next year, our plan is to deep bloom these trees and really just get a bunch of massive the biggest one we had was nine, I measured it, it was weight-wise, picked off the tree, it was 975 grams. Wow, and so you're gonna try to grow some yeah. to their full. <laughs> we stopped at one last greenhouse. Oh, nasturtium heaven, <laughs> God. Yeah, the are where it's at. Oh, yeah, it smells so peppery. Yeah, it's so amazing. Gary, do you remember that our mom used to grow these? We had wallpaper in one of our houses that had nasturtiums right. all cool. over them. I need to do that to my bathroom. That'd be cool. <laughs> it was a nasturtium wallpaper. Lemon, Meyer lemon, kumquats guavas that we transplanted so you can see here like all the older leaves are falling by the wayside but all the new abud growth these trees are going to be just flushed out here this spring real nice look how happy this kohlrabi yeah. is my yeah. really nice green kohlrabi it's so pretty i mean every time i see a plant like this it's just riddled in you know bug damage yeah it's just so lovely to see it so happy. we do a lot of compost tea here so uh -huh. we've transitioned to doing a lot of like living soil injections. Uh -huh. Compost tea, living soil injections, whatever they're doing, it seems to be working. The greenhouses and the grounds of Baker Creek are lush and impressive. If you want to learn more about Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company, we have links on our website and you can find their Instagram page at Baker Creek Seeds. We were speaking with farm manager Jordan Chow. After a quick break, producer Violet Barron shares a story about a local food business for busy folks who value fresh food. Stay with us. driving home from work after a long day with a list of domestic to-dos already on your mind. You're hungry and tired, 
And the last thing you want to do is come up with something to eat that's healthy and tasty and will not require you to then clean a kitchen's worth of pots, pans, and plates. I have a series of iPhone notes and Pinterest boards aimed at solving the ideas portion of this challenge, but the rest continues to elude me. While Kelly and Ron Abden at Lost Farm have a potential solution, their business delivers pre-cooked plant-forward meals to customers in pre-portioned sizes. Kelly and Ron are a husband and wife team who live on a farm just outside of Bloomington. It's one that's been in Kelly's family for generations. Ron, the chef, is a 20-year veteran of the restaurant industry. They teamed up after the start of the pandemic to use their strengths in growing and cooking food to try out this new venture. I sat down with them in their sunny kitchen in early spring of 2023 to hear more about the project. It's both the farm where we live and then also our meal service business. We try to buy local ingredients and treat them well. And uh, my husband's been cooking for many years. We deliver people pre already cooked, ready to Re- eat or, meals. Yes. Ready to reheat. Yes. Is the other ready one. to reheat at your convenience. What was like the genesis of this idea? What made you want to start a food business and one in town? I have worked in restaurants for many, many years. The farm was always here with the garden and that was just purely for us wanting to eat fresh food that we grew. Kelly's passionate about gardening. That was her love from many, many years ago. I not only worked in restaurants, but I'm also a home cook. And so I would work in restaurants during the day and come home and cook for the whole family here on the farm for many, many years. And that was where it all kind of started. But when the pandemic hit, I was sort of questioning what I wanted to do in the food world. And I think a lot of people were rethinking their place in the food world. And that's sort of where the meal service idea came up, something that could kind of showcase my home cooking where I got to cook what I want and how I wanted, but also deliver it to people in a way that was safe. And I think that was a lot of people were thinking that way. During the pandemic, a lot of restaurants kind of shifted to more delivery. I definitely thought that. And that was the genesis of the idea. We were like, hey, let's start this meal service business. We have relatives that use different meal services or meal prep services. Now ours goes a step further and everything's fully cooked and ready to reheat. We also thought it would be a way to showcase local food as well. We buy produce from local farmers and proteins from local farmers and help showcase the local food that we have here in Bloomington. It was a great way to combine our two loves, the garden and food. And it was we always wanted to work together. And this was the way that it finally came together for us. When the pandemic hit, we didn't have trouble buying eggs or bread or meat And it was because we were used to shopping from the local farmers and they still had that system didn't break down. And so that really encouraged us that the local system here is pretty strong and we wanted to plug into it and be more a part of it. Cooking seasonally and talking with the farmers and knowing what they're going to have and what are are you going to have next week? What are you going to have two weeks from now? That really helps me focus on the menu and can help guide me. You know, I mean, I can cook whatever I want. You know, it's our small business, but I try to do my best to produce things seasonally for people. I was already going to the farmer's market every weekend. That was just one of my my things. And that kept going during the pandemic, which was nice. And people really got to, I think, know each other more because there was less people showing up. You could order ahead. So they'd see your name and connect your name and your face and your order. Made a lot of friends with the farmers and... I love it when they're like, okay, I'm going to have too many potatoes or I'm going to have this. And then I go to him and I say, okay, make a potato dish. And he does. It is delicious. The other thing that 
we've started doing as well is Kelly has increased what we're producing in our own garden and at our own farm. And we've been open almost two years now. And over those two years, we've learned what we use a lot of and what we're good at growing here on the farm and increasing that so that we're producing a lot of the food, especially in the summertime, that Lost Farm Meal Service uses. And it helps us keep food costs down during that time of year when there's a lot of produce. But organic and local produce is not cheap either. And a lot of the farmers will work with you on stuff, but you can't, their margins are probably just as slim as a restaurant or our food business margins, if not slimmer. You know, you they can't discount their food even if I am buying it in bulk. They are uh, willing to work with you, but it's also been really helpful to just grow our own and have that source of really, really in-house grown produce um, that we can feature our own and, and it just works to both of our strengths. I was really happy for about two or three months. He didn't have to buy any onions. Mm-hmm. And I love growing alliums, you know, garlic and onion family. That just made me so happy. Not that onions are the most expensive things to buy, but we use a lot of them, a ton of them, you know. It takes a community of people like specializing and doing things. I think if you try to do everything all yourself, there's just not enough time in the day. And so we sort of picked what we're good at and what we like doing, and we try to fit in to the puzzle of the local food community. And Kelly, do you have some sort of creative autonomy in that? Can you decide, like, you know, I really want to try growing this thing and maybe we'll incorporate it this mm-hmm. year? For sure. My mom loves lima beans, and so I told them this year I'm taking up space to put up lima beans. That's just going to happen. It may not be enough for the meal service to use, but then, you know, we both love peppers, and so it's fun for me to say I found this new pepper variety, and this is what I think you can use it for, and sometimes he has other ideas. He'll say, it'd be really nice if I had... Eggplants. Like I've never grown eggplants, but he said I was using them a lot. They're great in curries. Could we have some of those? Some people are doing it, but I can throw a few extra plants out there next to the peppers because they're the same family. And so I'm happy to do that. It's a creative part science, part art thing that we have going on here. We love that. That's very cool. Yeah, it sounds that way. And that's nice too, because sometimes when something you enjoy, planting and gardening becomes your business, you lose some of that pleasure. So it's nice to hear you get to retain some of that or make decisions within that. That's true. We wanted to, whatever work we did, whatever food, we could have done any food business. He can cook almost anything. And we wanted to do one that we could keep going. So we weren't making the same food every single week. That was something that grinds you down when you're in the restaurant. And every year I can grow a little bit different things. Or if I grow nothing, there's enough farmer's markets that we could supply it that way. I think we found a good balance between saying where you find a job that you love and it doesn't feel like work. That's where we are and it's beautiful. Kelly also, I think, really enjoys going through the seed catalogs and finding this new variety of something and plants it. And does it work? Is it working for us? Do we like eating it? And it's part of the experimentation that goes on at the farm on her end as far as trying new things. And not everything becomes big enough to be part of the meal service, but we also just started. And it's fun to play around with. As someone who cooks a lot, it's always fun when Kelly brings a new variety of anything into the house. And it's just like, okay, let's see what we do with it. I buy and read a lot of cookbooks and the internet is so full of information about food from everywhere. And so even those weird varieties, you can just Google search that and someone's already cooked it and talked about it somewhere and you can kind of learn from them. But then it's also, you know, fun to just sort of go out on your own and see what you can make with a new ingredient. Feeding people, it's a job, but it also crosses over into sort of a calling. And I think gardening is like that too. 
we get so much pleasure when people tell us, oh, I love this dish, or someone else said that I feel so much better eating your food. That means a lot. It makes it worthwhile. Kelly, you were telling me as I was driving in that it's your mother's and your sister's house just on the same plot of land here. My grandparents didn't move here until the 60s. They worked really hard in the factories all their lives and saved up their money and got a plot of land, and they picked a good one on the high ground. So we're lucky to have that. And my grandmother lived with us here until she was 97. So I got a lot of good wisdom from her. The other half of the family, though, they're just not into farming. They live up in Indianapolis, and they wanted to sell the farm. So we ended up, those houses that you can see in the back 30 acres there used to be part of our farm, and that was the compromise. We sold that. And now those people get to live with a nice view of our place. What's left is ours to do with. My side of the family, my mom and my sister were ecstatic. And they're the kind that you, you give an idea and they're like, yes, you can do it. I believe in you. Let's do it. We actually rent out that pasture to a, another farm, Maple Valley Farm. So they use that pasture for their cattle and their sheep. We have a great deal. We get meat from that. We love it. Raised on our own land. It tastes delicious. And it supports them. When they were here, they had a small herd of cattle and a few horses. My grandpa was actually in the cavalry when there was still a cavalry, <laughs> like the last 10 years of the cavalry. So he was really into horses. So they just had a, a couple for pleasure. And then after my grandfather died, there was a pony and there was my mom, St. Bernard's, but the cattle had to go as she got older. And so she started renting out to another farmer that's close by. And he did the traditional corn and soybeans, braid them. He was following all the recommended practices that everyone does, but it wasn't organic, and the rows would make the pasture just wash away. And so one of my biggest goals, once we finally got control of this part of the farm, was to stop that and to switch it over to something organic. I'm not paying for certification, but we don't want to use any sprays or anything here. The last time the farmer was here, I had him seed it into pasture grasses, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I'm trying to read. I'm trying to talk to people. Not a lot of people had experience at that time that I knew from converting conventional row crops to pasture. So I was kind of making it up as I went along. But once you get the animals out there, you can really see the land do better. And they move them every day when they're here. They'll move them once a day. And so the land doesn't get overused. It's useful. It's making this delicious food. And that makes me happy. I came to Bloomington for college and wasn't a very good college student. So like a lot of people in Bloomington, I got a job in the restaurant industry, just kind of fell in love with cooking and felt like I was pretty good at it. And I enjoyed the restaurant life, the camaraderie, the stress, the hot kitchen. And it was just a, it was just a fun atmosphere for me. I, and I felt like I kind of thrived in it did that for a while. Like a lot of people in their mid-20s, that's when Kelly and I met. When we moved back to Bloomington, they're almost the only jobs available in certain ways. So I went back to the restaurant industry and re-fell in love with cooking and worked at a few different restaurants. I think one of the main things that really sparked me was working for One World Catering, just the variety of food that we cooked. And at One World Catering, I had to sort of think more about processes. You would get a request to make a certain dish, and so you just made it, and you'd figure out how, how it was going to work. I think that really helped my education, but also helped learning to cook for that many people all at once was a big part of the background of Lost Farm Meal Service, because that's what I do now. 
I'm always cooking for 25 people at a time. And that's not something that you learn to do in restaurants. You do one person at a time or maybe five people at a time doing one dish. So I think the balance of learning the basic skills in restaurants and then going into a catering company really informed me, but also just my home cooking as well. I enjoy food, but a line cook salary doesn't let you spend a lot of money. And so we've always wanted to travel, but we've never had a lot of money. And so one way to travel sort of in your mind is to go get a cookbook, go check out a cookbook from the library that was from wherever, someplace that you can't afford to go to, and then cook a few things in it. We do all the work at the One World Kitchen Share, which is separate from One World Catering. I think Jeff Meese was really smart, but also compassionate to small businesses and food businesses. And I, I think One World's done a really good job helping new small food businesses get started with that space. The One World Kitchen Share is a fully stocked professional kitchen that you can rent by the hour. So for my business, once we set it up and got inspected by the health department, you rent it by the hour. You go onto the website. I need it for eight hours, three days a week. And I go in there and I rent it. There's currently two kitchens for rent right now. Things are always changing over there. There's a lot of space. It's a really cool space to work in. It has everything that I need and more. I know a lot of food trucks use it for prep and there's other catering businesses. That was one of the most surprising things to me. I thought, oh, I wish we had our own kitchen and we didn't have to share. We wouldn't be out in this space, but it's been such a great experience. You meet all these small businesses. Someone new shows up, you're like, oh, hey, what do you make? And then you end up switching food and learning about the type of food that you've never cooked before. And also that space is cool because it's got different bays. So there's Peakley Dolce works there and the Bloomington Bagel Company has a bay out there and it's separate. And so there's always so much going on there and uh, people to talk to. You don't have time as a small business owner to research for the best prices for everything are. So you see someone, ooh, those are nice containers. Where did you get that? How much did you pay? It's a place where you can share this kind of information and give people shortcuts, but it really means a lot. It's also a place where when you run out of rice, because someone forgot to put it on the list, you're just like, hey, can I borrow two cups of rice? There's someone there. It's a really great feeling. I love the community spirit that has popped up at the kitchen chair. What about the customer side? Who are some of the repeat customers that you're seeing? A lot of people who used to cook a lot, and maybe they're getting older or just more busy, they don't have time. I would say that a lot of our customers are people that they just want to eat clean food. They don't want to eat anything artificial. I also think that there's people that use different meal prep services, but you still have to cook for half an hour. I think it's a time saver and a convenience for people. Some of our customers are just busy and don't have time to cook, but want to eat something that's homemade. I was curious, um, the model, like, on the one hand, it's single servings. I mean, you say that you can sometimes couple share it, but how come that was the best sort of option for you guys? We pretty much do everything, and so we had to keep something streamlined. For Thanksgiving and holidays like that, we were able to sell things. when We knew people wanted to buy them more in bulk and family style. And I think in the future, that might be something that we... We look to, you know, we're starting to get more efficient and better at our job. And so we actually have time to think about what else we should be doing. A couple of people have asked for it, so we might do that. But I think the single serving just keeps it simple. Most people, I think, are using the microwave. They can just, it's very easy and convenient. Is this a model you're seeing anywhere else? I haven't seen it elsewhere. I can't be the only person that has come up with this idea. I'm sure it's going on other places. 
the idea just sort of popped almost like just ordering carry out from a restaurant and then just taking it home and putting it in your fridge. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've gone out to eat where I'll eat. And then I'm like, I want to really want to have that too. So I'll just order that to go at the end of my meal and bring it home. And just thinking about that sort of informed the idea. But yeah, I don't know of anybody else. Most of the meal services seem to be either you have to prepare them at home or sort of a one shot thing. You're buying just like cooked chicken or some cooked vegetables and done a full meal. Yeah. I I think there used to be a company in Bloomington that was doing something like that where you could like mix and match like proteins, but they just had 10 different steamed vegetables and a few different proteins. And you could buy like, you know, three chicken breasts and four corns or whatever. I think we're offering local organic meals made from scratch and a convenience to people but I'm just trying to bring something really flavorful and really tasty, but it's also healthy and local and organic whenever we can. We have a lot of repeat customers, and I love that seeing what they're going to pick. And I have my guesses, and you learn what people like. That's a really fun part of it. You learn to guess, oh, if we this did really well, it gives us ideas of what else to make. So we're just trying to feed people well and give them what they want and give them a clean and delicious meal. Anything that you didn't expect in creating the business or in building it up that you learned or had to adapt to? How much people love soup (laughs) and they miss now that their darn good soup is gone. Yeah, we started the business in the summertime and when fall hit, we started making soup. I could not make enough soup. I don't know, that wasn't totally surprising, but And then we started making, we would do two soups in a week, and then both of those would sell out as well. Going back to the, when something you love turns into the business, are you still enjoying the part of growing and then cooking the food? I am. I love to see how we get better. It's a challenge to have a food business where you change the menu every week. And, you know, we do repeat some of our dishes, but just when you get good at something, then the next week you're making something completely else. I love seeing us get more efficient, and it's fun, and he's a great co-worker. I really like my co-worker. Love my boss. I love getting better. This job is teaching me to be better at gardening and try different things, so I, the joy is still there for me. Don't let Kelly fool you. I'm not the boss of the business. She is definitely in charge. I'm still loving it too. The ability to just share my home cooking with everybody and seeing how much joy I can give them has been really great for me. And also just the challenge of coming up with new menus every week. That's maybe the hardest part, trying to keep it fresh. But I'm always reading new cookbooks or new blogs on the internet and trying new dishes. Sometimes I'm trying new stuff out that I've never made before on the meal service to see how it does. And I always learn quite a bit when I do that. And sometimes you make mistakes, but we always end up figuring out a way to make it delicious. That's something that that I think you learn in the restaurant industry. There's no failing you you get it done you make it happen so we always make it happen every week it's always delicious sometimes it's not pretty but we make it happen after our chat kelly took me out on a little tour of her garden which she was just getting ready for spring planting kelly when i was coming in you were you were doing something what were you up to on sunny spring days like this i Definitely have to get out in the garden, and I was checking my mint, which is popped back up. So I uh, was clearing off the old dead stems from last fall that protected the soil over the winter. And now you can see the little baby plants are they're up uh, about two inches right now. 
And these raised beds here were our pandemic project. We finally put in asparagus and I have strawberries here. And uh, you can see I overwintered some kale. The cover blew off <laughs> and the varmints ate some of it, oh. but <laughs> it's coming back. Kale's tough. Yeah. The garden is pretty much how I left it in the fall. I do a little bit mix of tilling and no-tilling I'm experimenting with. The tarps that you see laid out are gonna be where the sweet potatoes are gonna grow. They're gonna warm the soil up all spring so I can get those in. When they send me the slips, we've got, the only thing that's growing right now is garlic and onions. You can see it pops up early, especially this year. So this bed, I learned that the more herbs and flowers that I grew with my garden, the less pests I have. So I put in these little corner kind of perennial areas and this, you see, you see this green ferny plant coming up here is tansy. And I need to clear off last year's stuff here that was protecting the soil and give it room to come through. Tansy's tough as soon as the sun comes back and we leave the Persephone period, we, it starts growing. And Did you say the Persephone period? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> when the amount of, of daylight goes to below a, a certain level, like you can just tell the plants shut down. And so, you know, it's like November through, and then February it comes back and you leave it and things start to grow again. I love that. Yeah, you can see these bright green little leaves coming up around all the brown matter that you're clearing out. Well, and this here, now this, I don't know what this is called, but this is a weed and I give them little names when I don't know what they're called, so I just call this the rascal weed. It tells me that the soil is thawing out. I try not to get mad at it. I'm gonna pick it out of here and make room for my, uh, like my chamomile that's gonna self-sow. I look at these little weeds and I'm like, oh, when I see that, I know that in a couple of weeks, something else is gonna happen. Like I know when the white dogwood blooms over there on the tree line, it's time to go look for mushrooms. We never find them before the dogwood blooms, but we oh, always that's do very cool. So I really like to pay attention to the plants and the soil, it talks to you if you pay attention. Yeah. So these are telling me, hey, all the early vegetables that like to grow, it's time. The ground is warm enough, you can start. Oh, awesome. That's a great note to end on. All right, well, thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Kelly and Ron Abden at Lost Farm in Bloomington. We spoke in early spring of 2023. You can find more info on our website, eartheats.org. For Earth Eats, I'm Violet Barron. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Kelly and Ron Abden, Gary Young, Jordan Chell, and everyone at Baker Creek. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Mm-hmm.